Sam Tracy. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And thanks for tuning in to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs, including policy, science, culture, and so much more. This show is produced by Twid Media, whose members are all alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs. We also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way. You can check them all out on our website, thisweekindrugs.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where we go over some of the biggest stories from drugs, drug policy this week. But before we do that, we want to first say thank you to our sponsor this week, which is listeners like you. So if you're listening right now, you can head on over to patreon.com slash twid and check out some of the people who are already supporting us and the awesome rewards that we have for our sponsors. We also, if you listened last week, are hopefully aware that we have a new co-host this week because Rochelle is back. Yay, completely brand new, never before seen. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, I mean, let's just, let's let's go. What do you, what do you have for us? Kick it off. All right, um, so for the first story this week, it's about um, the resurgence of Xanax in America um, as a drug to look out for. So over the last several years, of course, a lot of, a lot of attention has been given to the critical rise of opioid overdose deaths across the country. That's not really news to anyone these days. Um, and rightfully so, because just as a reminder, between 1999 and 2016, the number of opioid overdose-related deaths quintupled, so that's times five. During the same period of time, however, the number of overdose deaths involving benzodiazepines um, has actually increased by a factor of nearly eight. Um, what are your initial thoughts on that, Sarah? I wish I were more surprised, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily would have guessed, uh, you know, that it had increased nearly eight times uh, compared to five times when you're just looking at all overdoses. But, you know, I think it's, there are some similar um, causes, I guess, to the opioid epidemic. Um, people are in a lot of ways, looking for some type of escape. Yeah, and that's definitely where, um, you know, this particular article that we're looking at in Vice, um, that's what it really ultimately points to. Um, just to give a little bit more background information and in the data on these overdoses and kind of comparing opioids to benzos, um, definitely opioids in raw numbers are still claiming more lives. Um, just more people are using them generally. But it is important to note, um, which researchers did, that over 30% of opioid overdose deaths are actually better described as a fatal mixture of both opioids and benzos. Um, so, you know, benzos have already been showing up in these other overdose deaths that we have been um, paying a lot more attention to. And of, co of course, um, common benzodiazepines that people may be familiar with are Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, um, the type of medications that are typically prescribed to treat anxiety or to um, help calm people down. Um, yeah, so you were talking about the, the similar causes behind. <laughs> the sort of the, the deaths of despair um, that newspapers and have been talking about for really since 
since before 2016, but I feel like it's been a more common narrative since the election, just talking about uh, the number of... What is, yeah, like, what is what is that term you use, the deaths of despair? Deaths of despair, it's talk... Generally, I see it used when people are talking about um, middle-aged white people um, at dying from drug use or, you know, they tend to split up prescription drug use or illegal drug use and mm-hmm. alcohol um, or suicides, but just things that are, mm-hmm. you know, rooted in despair and this sort of looking for an escape in a way to um, forget. Right. Again, better. and this is this is um, a public health crisis that has primarily affected rural blue collar communities um, throughout America, like you said, middle, middle-class, middle-aged white people. Um, so, um, another, another part that I found really interesting about this article, which I'm not going to go over because it is quite extensive, but that the use of, um, depressants like this or sedatives like this has been traced throughout the history of the United States going back. Um, this article says centuries, or no, sorry, this article says decades, but I want to say centuries, um, you know, whether it was opium and opium dens, you know, mm-hmm. during the 19th century to uh, barbiturates and other opioids, you know, progressing through the early 1900s. Um, so the the reason that um, these this article thinks that your theory is correct, Sarah, that this is more um, a matter of uh, deaths of despair rather than like uh, some of the other causes that people have hypothesized around um, opioids is because there really isn't the same financial incentives involved um, with these substances as there are with opioids. You know, um, Purdue Pharmaceutical in particular has been aggressively marketing uh, OxyContin for decades. And uh, that's not the same with uh, benzos, which are generally uh, widely available as generics. So there just isn't the same profit motive. And yet we're still seeing an increased use and, um, you know, really risky uh, type use um, behind uh, this uh, substance. So something else to keep an eye on, you know, as economic and political matters uh, continue to despair us (laughs) going into 2018. Yeah, well, let's let's move on. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have something happier for us? I think so. I think it's happier. Okay, Um, I'm ready. So this is about a study that was research um, published in a study that was done by some scientists from the BC Center on Substance Use. And basically- this is BC, British Columbia? Yes. Thank you. Shout out to Canada. Yes, we have our resident Canadian. (laughs) Yay, return of Canada! (laughs) Uh, So yeah, this is is exciting, I think, uh, particularly for harm reduction um, purposes. But essentially, this the study that um, came out of the BC Center on Substance Use, it really challenges the general narrative of marijuana as a gateway drug. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. It's exciting. Um, (laughs) So over a 10-year period, these scientists interviewed 481 young people who were experiencing homelessness, who reported that they had never injected drugs. Um, okay. But they were people who smoked cannabis and, you know, used used other drugs, but their method of use was not injection. Um, and what they found 
was that daily cannabis use was associated with a 34% decrease in the rate at which people began injecting drugs. And I think that kind of number is, is staggering in general, um, but particularly when we're talking about cannabis use, I think, and cannabis use as a, a harm reduction measure. Um, the, both the scientists who did the research um, and you know published the article and the journalists who wrote another piece that we're looking at in the Globe and Mail are really talking about how exciting it is that judging by this literature and these results, marijuana has the potential to be used as kind of a substitution for opioids and crack cocaine, um, which is something we've seen before. Um, what I was going to say is that, so this is amazing because not only is it not a gateway drug as prohibitionists have been claiming all along, like the use of marijuana does not necessarily lead to, or even make it more likely that you'll use other substances, but it actually reduces the odds. Like it reduces the likelihood. It's like an anti-gateway drug. Exactly. Um, and that's one thing they talk about. They talk about how really a lot of these young people reported that they were using that their marijuana use was a way for them to kind of manage their other drug use. Um, they didn't feel necessarily the need to to use other drugs if they were able to access marijuana. And I think that, um, you know, is something we're thinking about when we think about accessibility and legalization. Um, and considering that this was in Canada, it will be interesting to see if or how numbers change when cannabis is maybe more accessible um, and legal. Mm -hmm. Here in the United States. Oh, yeah, in, um, in Canada. Oh, oh, right. Since when they legalized the soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this also really builds on the on the research from that one, um, you know, AJAM article that showed a 25% reduction in overdose-related um, deaths mm -hmm. uh, in states with medical marijuana um, because it shows, it actively shows that people are using this to like not just reduce the potential to overdose, but to reduce their use of other substances in the first place, you know, which is going to decrease the odds of overdose anyway. And yeah. ultimately what we're trying to, I guess, what public health policy is trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I found really interesting about this um, is its focus on young people kind of specifically. And the you know, notes in the article that the like average age of starting to inject drugs is between somewhere between 19 and 23. Oh, so, wow. and the, the young people interviewed, um, for the research were between 14 and 26. Um, so this is kind of like smack dab in the middle, but it is interesting, you know, if we're talking about harm reduction and keeping young people safe, um, which is such an important demographic, this, you know, maybe they're, maybe we have to change the way we're talking about drug education. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think this is interesting. Um, it's published in the March issue of the Drug and Alcohol Review, but I don't believe it's open access, um, but it's, we will link to it so people can at least check out the abstract if they're interested. Awesome. And this is uh, a great piece of literature to share in um, the legislature of your state where if you don't have uh, adult use uh, legalization yet, or even if you don't have medical use, I mean, this is great literature to share with any policymaker 
or influencer in your state to talk about the importance of, um, uh, you know, allowing, mm-hmm. <laughs> allowing access to marijuana, not just for what they call recreational use, you know, or not even for criminal justice measures, if that's not something that re- resonates with your elected officials. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so let's, let's go to our next big one. Okay, so moving on, and this one is going to be another um, marijuana-related story, but a little bit more on the policy and law side. So earlier this year, in February, I want to say, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin and City Attorney Pete Holmes announced that they would move to vacate hundreds of misdemeanor marijuana convictions from before Washington State legalized. So I believe in Washington this means that they completely destroy the record of your uh the criminal record of marijuana possession that you might have from before legalization. Okay. However, really quickly. Yes. Yes. Washington was 2012, right? Correct. Yes. I always get it confused with Oregon. Yes. Oregon was in 2014. Okay. Um, And I feel like we have some friends who are pretty mad about that because they came really close in 2012. (laughs) I mean, I would be upset too, but so yeah, so just first, that's great perspective actually, because that means it took six years for Washington State, which was one of the two first states to legalize, to actually come around to thinking about oh, what happens to the people who were harmed by prohibition before we changed the law, mm-hmm. um, and hopefully that means that you know, like with a lot of states looking looking ahead now to legalization, that they're going to incorporate some of these um, post conviction measures and resentencing type measures in their own uh, legalization laws. But uh, so that tangent aside, um, what this article is actually about is how this process is way trickier for immigrants um, with even uh, minor marijuana convictions, because under a 1996 federal law, immigration courts define convictions more broadly than criminal courts do. Mm. Okay. So do you want to know what that means? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that means for criminal courts, a conviction is when you know, the jury or judge finds you guilty of having committed the crime and you serve some sort of sentence or pay a fine. Um, In immigration court, however, they include convictions that were vacated as a result of rehabilitation programs, for example. Mm. Um, So, and this is interesting language. I don't know um, if these terms mean different things in Washington state because vacated where I'm from means like the conviction no longer counts but it sounds here like for immigration courts if you are like let's say you have possession of marijuana and they're like all right instead of going to jail or paying a fine like just go to uh drug ed classes uh once a week for the next two months you know and then you do that and they're like all right you don't have to go to jail or pay pay a fine you know um so that would count as a conviction under immigration courts but that doesn't count as a conviction under criminal law because you didn't actually like get convicted it was like deferred basically does that make sense yeah yeah okay my my non-lawyer self says yes that makes sense yes awesome okay (laughs) um so for for immigration courts in order to get a conviction vacated then there has to be an actual determination that there was no valid basis for the original conviction So if you had possession of marijuana, just a small amount, and they were like, you don't have to go to jail or pay a fine as long as you go to drug ed class, 
and you go to drug ed class and they're like, all right, your conviction is vacated. That means you, it, under criminal law, you weren't actually convicted. They were like, good job, you were deferred. Um, but the fact of the matter is that you did actually have marijuana on you. They just gave you like a softer sentence basically, or like a, def- a deferment. So for immigration court, you w- they would have to find that there was no actual basis for having given you that thing anyway. Okay. Like the cop has to have been mistaken about what you were possessing. Like, yeah. You would have had to, like, it would have been like oregano or something that you had and not actually. Right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so all, sorry, go ahead. No, I guess the, you know, I think this is really exciting, but the, the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, is, you know, federal law, because so much immigration stuff, especially recently, um, you know, the things that are making the news are federal. Um, and, you know, we've seen, I think Seattle has also, um, been part of the sanctuary city movement and Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess I would be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, when, when this starts to go through and people are actually, um, we're seeing these charges and convictions being vacated. Um, I will be interested to see what Jeff Sessions has to say. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, it sounds like they're actually coming up with a solution and, you know, um, post-conviction relief, expungement, record sealing, et cetera, is really, really different from, uh, one state to another. But, um, Hopefully, you know, with Seattle as a model, other states can start replicating this, too, uh, once they pass legalization or even decriminalization laws. Um, And the last thing I just want to say about this is, like, why this is so important for immigrants is because a single marijuana conviction on their record can prevent someone from obtaining U.S. citizenship. So, like, even if they're doing the process correctly, even if they came here on a valid visa and are now a long-term permanent resident, um, such as I am, for example, and you serve you serve your eight years, or you live here eight years without getting into any sort of trouble, um, then you can almost automatically, like after filling out the paperwork and paying the fee, uh, become an American citizen. Um, and with a single marijuana conviction on your record, you would not be able to do that. Wow. So it's a big deal, I think, for people who you know believe that immigrants should come in like in the correct way Mm -hmm. and I'm ranking air quotes you know but even then it makes it extremely difficult for for us to do so well yeah we will definitely be keeping an eye on Seattle and what happens from here um I guess our last big one of the week both of mine are international but uh this one that's what we love you for (laughs) yay Uh, So a parliamentary committee in the Australian state of Victoria released a 600 and about 50 page report on drug policy reform this week. Wow. Yeah. The report included Victoria, (laughs) 50 recommendations. um, Wow. One of them called for back of the house pill checking at music festivals. Okay, not bad. Yeah. And so it's pretty exciting uh, to have that, you know, as a recommendation to a state government body. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Absolutely. But I guess so one thing to clarify, uh, for folks who maybe are not super familiar with drug checking, uh, back of the house testing means that authorities, um, so law enforcement officials will have access to drug checking, um, kits or chromatography. They don't really, you know, mm. go into details about what they, what type of drug checking, um, 
they would like to see, at least not in the article that I read. I will admit mm-hmm. I have not read all 600 pages of the report, <laughs> and I don't know that I plan to. <laughs> but um, it wouldn't... So it's not like reagent testing where, you know, it's not fully legal necessarily, mm-hmm. but we have... So it's only for law enforcement then? Yes. Um, basically, oh. what would happen, they talk about... Um, they would test the substances so that they can treat patients. So it's kind of... It's not really a... It's preventative in the sense that if someone were having a bad reaction, um, they would test the substance that they'd taken, and then they could issue an alert about it. Um, mm-hmm. So sort of in the way now where someone overdoses and, uh, you know, uh, a green-pressed pill or whatever with, you know, mm-hmm. whatever little symbol you see on ecstasy pills. Mm-hmm. Um, if pressed pills are still a thing. I don't know. I'm old. But... Uh, <laughs> So just give it like releasing the information after someone has already overdosed, which is better than nothing, um, but definitely not ideal. It doesn't give people the chance to break off a little bit and test before they ingest. Um, right. So someone has already had to have gotten sick. Yeah. And there, so um, Nina Springle, who's from a member of parliament from the Green Party, recognizes that you know it's a step forward but also is quoted in this article as saying how many more people need to overdose before the labor government understands the current approach is not working and yeah exactly uh snaps for nina (laughs) um (laughs) but you know i think overall it's it's upsetting that people and festival goers won't have direct access to this um but we do know that reagent kits exist and there are people who have them and will be using them um and And you said this is in australia right yes so this is the the moo festival right yes that was (laughs) if you are not that's a great pitch um if you're not subscribed to our newsletter you totally should be because we talked about pill checking at the groove in the moo festival last week that is the most australian name i've ever heard of if any of our listeners are going please let us know how it is we would love to know send us pictures pictures. show us what the the drug checking tents look like too while you're there yeah and so one thing that's really interesting about this actually um before this report came out the, the victorian government um has been completely opposed to drug checking kind of taking the the general stance that we see where there's no safe level to um, or that it encourages drug use. Basically. Um, right. And actually, one of the concerns that was cited in like not giving the public direct access to drug checking services is another one we hear all the time um, in conversations about any type of drug checking, that drug dealers will go and use the service so that then they can like boast about the quality of their product. Mm. Which, I mean... Frankly, I wouldn't be upset about it. If drug dealers want to go right? check their product, that's great. Wouldn't you rather they do that than have dangerously contaminated drugs that they're selling? You would think. But, um, yeah, so I think this is exciting. Um, we'll see if anything is actually implemented um, and how how long that takes, I guess. But... I do think it's interesting to see the state government really trying to take, or at least being told and having it recommended to them that they should take a more active role in music festivals. Yeah, definitely. And now it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. 
This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. Join them at patreon.com slash twid. If you've listened to This Week in Drugs before, you know that we have a 30-second commercial each week, which helps cover the cost of producing the show. But that's not our biggest source of funding. The big majority of our money comes from listeners like you, who sign up to support our work with a small monthly contribution. At patreon.com slash twid, you can get some great perks for as little as $1 a month. This money helps us pay our bills, like web hosting and audio production software, so that we can keep creating great content for you to listen to each week. Again, that's patreon.com slash twid. We appreciate your support. And now it's time for our quick hit headlines. Like many other law enforcement agencies across the country, from local cops to federal agencies, the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, is seeking to purchase technology that would help it unlock locked and encrypted iPhones. Graykey is the device that would allow them to do that and is available for $30,000 for an unlimited number of uses. Wow. Uh, In India this week, the Department of Tourism and Cultural Affairs in the state of Punjab created a committee to identify instances of glorification of drug abuse, violence, and depiction of any obscene elements in the songs broadcasted in the state. Earlier this week, an officer for the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime in Nigeria urged the African nation to relax its laws on the use of marijuana. The official made her comment during a hearing on the misuse of pharmaceutical drugs by Nigerian youth, emphasizing that the UN has approved the medical use of marijuana and supports its decriminalization. A spokesperson for the United Nations later clarified that it had not urged Nigeria to legalize marijuana and instead reiterated the recommendations in its 2017 International Narcotics Control Board report. It was revealed Tuesday that the Department of Justice is investigating whether or not prison officials in Massachusetts are violating the Americans with Disabilities Act by forcing individuals to quit medication-assisted treatment for addiction when they are incarcerated. Wow, that's interesting. So moving on now to the weekly forecasts. Um, So my forecast for the week is a call for research subjects, uh, similar to a couple we've done in the past. And this one is also at Johns Hopkins University, which is a really prestigious medical university in Baltimore um, that has done some research on psychedelics and different states of mind in the past. This time, they're looking for anyone who believes they have encountered aliens while tripping on DMT. Um, So DMT, of course, is the active compound in ayahuasca and a powerful hallucinogen. Uh, Many people who have taken DMT have described experiences of, quote, breaking through reality and meeting either aliens or angel or demon-like creatures. So whatever those beings might be, if you um, have taken DMT and have met such a being, um, the scientists scientists would like to hear from you. Uh, It is a quick 20 to 40 minute survey online, so you don't have to be in Baltimore to do this. Um, Anywhere you are in the country or the world or other planets, if we have extraterrestrial (laughs) listeners, um, it's a 20 to 40 minute survey. Uh, You fill it out online on the Earth Internet, uh, for which we'll include a link in our show notes. Excellent. Uh, Mine is- Aren't you glad to have me back? So glad. 
Uh, my forecast is for an event that takes place on April 5th, which is a Thursday, uh, in New York. And this is organized by Vocal New York, uh, one of our favorite organizations. Um, and it's a rally, and it's titled the End Overdose Open Safer Consumption Spaces Rally. Uh, so this is definitely a cause that is near and dear to our hearts and hopefully our listeners as well. Um, but it's going to take place on the steps of the City Hall at noon on Thursday the 5th, uh, partially because, well, entirely because of the mayor's delay in releasing, releasing the Safer Consumption Spaces feasibility study. Um, yeah. I mean, yay for the study, boo for the delay. Exactly. Um <laughs> I think, you know, we're all aware of the overdose crisis and how many people have died. Um, the mayor has said that he's going to release the study in April, but April is uh, today, if you're listening Tomorrow. to this on Sunday. Tomorrow, oh yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, this is going to be an awesome event. Um, Vocal New York is fantastic. They always, uh, they know how to organize a, a good rally. Um, so our listeners in New York should definitely make an effort to be there uh, again it's on the steps of city hall at noon on april 5th and finally we'd like to give a shout out to this week's sponsors which are listeners like you so as everyone knows we do have a page on patreon where you can contribute just a few dollars a month to help us support the show um, it helps us make sure that we can cover the production costs and focus on high on creating high quality content for you guys and to keep thinking of new ideas and new segments and services to bring you. So that link is patreon.com slash twid. And um, we hope you enjoy this week's show. again for listening to season five of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you. If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode. For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.